Welcome everyone to All About Windows Phone Insight Podcast 201 and also to our friends on All About Symbian because people will see exactly why that is relevant. I know you're itching for news of the mobile industry, but instead you've got some some more origins of Steve Litchfield, which sounds rather immodest, Rafe, but apparently people are quite <laughs> enjoying the first part. Yeah, judging by the comments and some of the feedback we've got, people really enjoyed the first part. Um, in fact, there were so much origins to get through that we didn't really get through all of it. In fact, I'd, I'd say we only got through about half of it. Yeah. So this week we're going to kind of continue, and it's actually going to be more on the kind of all about side of things on both Symbian and Windows Phone. But I know we've got a few other things to talk about. Uh, of course, this is also where I come into the scene. So hopefully you'll hear a few more anecdotes from, from my side as well. And I, I promise not to embarrass uh, Steve too much, and I'll try not to embarrass myself either by misremembering things, because it, it's it's interesting. It does go back a bit, some of this history. In, in fact, we had a few errors that we just wanted to connect correct from last time, Steve. Yes. Uh, when I was covering Palm Top magazine, which, of course, I wrote for back in the late 1990s, I failed to name check um, Pete Sipple. I did say that at the time it was Steve Clack and I wrote all, all the articles. That wasn't strictly true. Pete may played a part in the early issues. And I'm sure in the back of my mind, there was someone else who, who wrote a few features. So if, if you're that person, you have some by some miracle, you're listening to this podcast, then I do apologise. <laughs> but it was a long, long time ago. It was. And just to make clear on the timelines, we kind of uh, jump back and forth at the end of the the last podcast, but really we're talking about kind of the early two thousands onwards. Uh, uh, in in this episode, we're trying to yeah. take a bit more about it. But I mean, summarising last time, we we talked about uh, Steve and his early career in the aerospace industry and wrecking a hundred thousand pound piece of equipment with glue or something along those lines let's not go there i was hoping the lawyers weren't listening just in case they're, they're <laughs> trying to pin that on me 25 years later it wasn't my fault honest i i think you're relatively safe there i think the law is probably a better thing to do than listen to origin story podcast well you never know we all also got into the early history of Zion and steve's starring role in that particularly around the three lib software library and some of the early homegrown apps written in OPL, like uh, Mapper, for example, and Fairway. Uh, but then also moving on to sort of, uh, I guess what you'd say, your early days uh, as a journalist in Palm Top magazine. And then we also did bits and pieces on family. And then we're jumping back and forth a little bit uh, when we got into the smartphone era and kind of the era of connected devices. And that was the, the rise of Symbian, which is really, Steve, where we're going to kind of pick up the story, isn't it? Well, yes, there's there's two things. One, I wanted to just give you a, a quick sort of a check about editorial quality, which we'll come to in a moment. I also wanted to just cover a couple of paper magazines that I haven't actually mentioned, which yes. I did write for at the time. So, But for, before we go there, I just want to sort of pick up where you left off there in terms of bringing you in, into the scene. All about Symbian, so I joined in 2004. I think it was AS then, not all about ER6. But uh, looking back at some of those early articles, Rafe, I have to say they do seem... If I'm brief and amateur, I'm talking about my own writing here, brief and amateurish by today's standards. I mean, have we all just got much better writer, uh, writers, Rafe? Are we ex expecting more in this day and age? If we'd put together one of our so-called device reviews from 2004, 2005, which were about 700 words, these days you'd laugh us off the face of the planet. And yet that's where the, we all were in terms of the field of phone journalism in the early 2000s. Yeah, it's an, an interesting one, this, because I went back and had a look at some of the early content. It certainly made me blush. And if, if Steve's embarrassed, <laughs> I, I need to be really, really embarrassed. 
because of course the very first articles on the on the website uh, are from me and i was sort of running uh, as you mentioned all about er6 for quite a while on my own and then did bring in start bringing in other contributors um I think Ewan arrived on the scene a little bit before you, Steve, but um, yeah. in terms of kicking off, in terms of mainstream uh, kind of contributions, actually it was a, both about the same time, you know, in terms of picking up a, a lot of the volume. And it did go from being kind of an occasional update to very much daily updates and often multiple stories in one day. But as you say, some of those were just a couple of hundred words long, you know, this new software is out. But there really was very little competition around at the time and very few people publishing that kind of uh, information in that format. Um, I mean, it's worth worth saying that this is before the days of kind of blogs had really been invented and there weren't any easy to use publishing platforms. Um, so early versions of the site were actually run off a Perl script and then I ended up writing something <laughs> myself. Uh, just to put this in context, uh, Engadget, which many people remember as one of the first, uh, well, it wasn't founded until I think 2004 and by that time um, the all about site had been going it been going a little while um so it sort of dates back to a similar era to things like gizmodo for example um but you know that that's how far back the history goes and actually a lot of the other sites around that time there, there were just a handful really big in this kind of pda smartphone space i mean people remember ryan who ran palm info center and then uh, jason dunn who did uh, pocket pc thoughts and those those were kind of the king for their particular platform. And then on on the Symbian side of things, it really was all about Symbian. There was also uh, Michael who ran my Symbian, and there were a couple of other sites around as well. But it was a small enough community that actually most of us knew each other uh, and were quite frequently in contact either at events or via email. You know, by contrast, of course, there are hundreds of sites, and you probably could argue there's still a similar number of really big ones. But just the the sheer volumes increase so much, and so I think a lot of that is the explanation for the type of content we see and also the the whole phenomenon of you know publishing content onto the internet has evolved very rapidly in the last you know well let's say the last two decades because you know, certainly you can trace some of the origins back a little bit earlier than the uh, early days of all about symbian um but also it's, it's what people expected to see and even with the 750 word uh, device reviews they were often still more comprehensive <laughs> something you'd see in the newspaper or in some of the yeah. dead tree magazines we fairly rapidly did uh, expand those and they yeah. turned into multi-part i mean a lot of that was also dating from the the move from it being purely a hobbyist to becoming a little bit more serious and professional which you know it was really a question a function of time and also uh, money not surprisingly uh, but yes i think a lot of it also was we grew up we matured and got better at what we we were doing um, and that's very evident also when you read the articles in a bit more detail. The, the depth of knowledge that's displayed and the thinking that goes into the average review is much greater than anything we did in the early days, where a lot of the time we're talking about the latest form factor that Nokia produced. Because, of course, at this, you know, in the early years, we were talking about you know, the contrast between something like the Communicator and then the Sony Ericsson P800 as a touch device, and then the Nokia 7650 as kind of the first of the Series 80 UIQ and Series 60 devices, respectively. So th things have changed a lot. I think it would be fun maybe to revisit this in a bit more detail in a All About Origins podcast, 
Uh, I kind of, on, for this episode, want to focus a bit more on Steve because I know we've got a lot to get through. <laughs> Indeed. I, I know you said earlier that we're kind of jumping about a bit, but I want to defend that approach because we are kind of grouping the anecdotes and observations into, into themed sections, if you like, so that we could, people can follow the thread rather than do it strictly chronologically. I wanted to go back in time just a few years, Rafe, to cover the last of the dead tree stuff, as it were. Um, PDA Essentials magazine I didn't mention, but yes, they started out in the Scion era as, as we tried transition into palms pocket pcs and even the early days of symbian and pda essentials ran for about a hundred um issues they were a uk-based publication uh, sold in in news newsstands um it was finally re- renamed smartphone essentials and then act for good kind of in the the the, the real uh, internet age also by then the, the symbian help desk had, had kind of wound down because the symbian scene had died down i was writing the symbian help desk and the palm ones quite often as well and i think i even tackled pocket pc on occasion but there were a few regular writers who all kind of pitched in the disheartening thing though rafe is that Writing for a, a paper magazine selling via newsstands, uh, just as much as writing for Palm Top magazine sort of five years before. Anything I wrote, I knew that only a few tens of thousands of people at most would ever read my writings. Tens, th- was tens of thousands sounds a lot, but online, all about Symbian, you were getting a million unique visitors a month. And, and I, potentially it could be hundreds of thousands, if not, maybe one day even millions of people might might read one particular article on all about Symbian. So uh, it's kind of going for the, the, the glory moment of seeing my article on paper in front of me, but it's sheer vanity at the end of the day. I, I've kept all those old PDA Essentials issues from the start, but I haven't referred to them once since then, um, whereas the all about Symbian content is still online. and People still go back and perhaps read those old articles online. Yeah, I mean, it is surprising. One of the things that isn't very apparent is the amount of kind of back content that still gets read today. Now, partly that's a function of the Google search engine access to the content. But we know from the occasional bit of feedback we get that people are reading some of those older articles. I mean, the, the print versus web thing is, you know, been done to death in some respects. But even someone like me who was really into the smartphone scene, I think probably only bought a handful of copies of PDA Essentials because quite often the content wasn't particularly up to date and um, it has to be said not all the writers were as good as uh, steve and so you know that was all, always a, a trade-off and a, something playoff but i would say that um you know that circulation figures particularly for pj essentials they did pretty well given it was a niche topic but it was always going to be hard to fight against you know websites which as you rightly say were getting millions of uniques uh, per month and while you certainly wouldn't say that every article was getting that level Certainly some of the high profile ones were getting hundreds of thousands of views um, and were relied on not just by kind of uh, pro pro consumers, but you had a lot of people who were getting into smartphones for the first time reading them. And a lot of people in the industry reading one of the great pleasures I always had you know, when going to events or meeting people, you know, people would always talk very passionately about a review that had just been written or that Steve had just been uh, you know, publishing on the site very knowledgeably as well, you know, make it very obvious that they had read it. And that was also apparent in the forums, which would often re- run into, you know, five, six hundred comments on a, any given review. And those were the flagship piece. And in between, of course, things maybe got read a little bit less. But yeah, it's interesting. We kind of take for granted now that, that the web has won over print publishing in many ways, um, particularly when you look at these specialities areas. Um, but I, I sometimes do still hanker after the, the paper and I still do occasionally buy magazines. And um, it does does surprise me and amaze me somewhat that you go into a news agent and still see lots yeah. of them. So it's still a habit that many people have. 
Yeah, I had quite high standards when I was writing the PD Essentials help desk and the Symbian features and so forth uh, and Palm features. And I remember I did my career rather a, a, a dent, really. When they published one of my articles, they put in a graphic of, I think it was something like a Palm with a pocket PC screenshot or vice versa. Basically, they, the, the, the typical sort of layout <laughs> editor, had, I missed, completely misunderstood which platform I was writing about and got the wrong graphic. So I basically emailed it and said, this is this is just who but you should not fire that person, but have a stern talking to to whoever did that. It turned out it was the sub editor who'd done it. And he was um, <laughs> he was the guy who was contracting me to do the work. So there was I had a bit of a lull in my career at PD Essentials, but they, they, I think they eventually forgave me. But it, uh, there's that kind of mistake. I just can't can't really tolerate it. It really went against everything about being technically good and what I did and what I wrote to be ruined by just someone pasting in the wrong JPEG at the last minute. Seemed anathema. <laughs> I know there were a couple of other um, magazines you wrote for, including yeah. PC Basics. I think it was as well as some writing of, of software manuals. So uh, before we move on to kind of all about proper, maybe we just cover those quickly. Yeah, PC Basics, not mobile related, but I did write reviews for this. Uh, in terms of my writing career, they offered the chance to to write for a, a desktop magazine. I said yes, please. It's good writing freelance m- money. Also, always felt very cool actually contacting a major manufacturer like Adobe and saying, "Can I have a review copy of your package?" And quote selling for five hundred pounds and getting back, "Sure, it's in the post to you." I think, wow, that was easy. <laughs> In theory, it could have saved me an awful lot of money. Ironically, I then switched to a Mac shortly afterwards. It was all rather a moot point, but um, quite a lot of fun uh, reviewing PC software for PC Basics. And I've still got those back issues somewhere in a cupboard. The the interesting thing, uh, it probably raises a good question, Steve, that uh, people always seem to assume that we had phones and freebies coming out of our ears. Um, And while it's true, we certainly got access to review devices and sometimes on long-term loans. I think it would probably surprise people how much work that sometimes required to make that happen. Maybe touch on that yeah. later. There was definitely a difference between software and hardware. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, software was very easy for the manufacturers. They had a PR department and they had 100 boxed copies of the software that cost them all of £1.50 to put together in a, you know, with a, a CD and a, and a leaflet and so forth. So that was a no-brainer. But yes, in terms of actually getting access to review hardware, I think we should cover that, if not later, then certainly in a, an All About Origins podcast in the new year. I think maybe get Ewan on board and a few others. I think that might be oh, quite a great fun. idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just one final thing I was d- doing work for back in the, uh, again, around about the 2000 time frame. Do you remember the the birth of the standalone sat-nav units um, that Palm Top Software, who we mentioned in part one, they they changed their company name to TomTom and they produced the, one of the one of the very first super duper standalone sat-navs, the TomTom Go. Do you remember that one? I, I do remember. And, and TomTom's an interesting story because this was really part of the sign diaspora, uh, I would almost say. In that a lot of the people working for Palm Top and yeah. subsequently TomTom did come out of sign and they had yeah. some pretty innovative ideas. And actually, SatNav was just one of them. And actually, Andrew Olowski, writing on the register, has kind of documented some of that. So if you want to know more about that, go and, go and have a quick Google for that. Yeah, so TomTom contacted me. Of course, they knew me from Scion days, and they knew I also wrote for Palm Top magazine and reviewed numerous of their products and generally quite favorably. Um, so they forgave the fact that I was competing with them with my mapper program, which by now had rather <laughs> paled in insignificance beside what they were doing uh, in terms of commercial route planning. But uh, anyway, they got, got in touch and said, could I write the manual for their new Series 5 money? So I guess this was the late 1990s. Um, they kind of re- retro coded this based on the very popular Series 3 money and the people were clamoring for a, an Epoch version for the Series 5 that you had, Rafe. Uh, but they didn't have a manual, so they'd written the code, but no, no manual. So I had to sit there learning how to use 
double is it called double entry bookkeeping and yep. uh, understanding that and writing that mind you, that was that was quite a challenge i have to say given i had zero interest and whenever anyone even to this day when mr rafe blandford or some editor says would you like to do a roundup of money management programs like oh no, no. really that's <laughs> like pulling teeth but anyway so I wrote that for for Tom Tom, and that was uh, quite quite fun. They they flew me across to Amsterdam for that one, and I had a pleasant few days working with them. And then went came back here to start the writing. And while I'm there, I get the idea of uh, getting me to write the uh, the quick start manual for the original Tom Tom Go Satnav, which was much more up my my alley my alleyway, if you like. And I had great fun there, with ch- chatting to the team that were programming it and helping them to design the interface and polish off some of the rough edges. The only frustrating thing is that they were still polishing the rough edges based after while well, I was writing the manual. So I'd write about a feature and how to use it, and I'd phone up and say, "Well." Uh, how do you do this? It's not obvious. Ah, oh, good point. We'll change it. They say <laughs> this is with like a week to go before the deadline for the manual, and they're changing the the interface right before my very eyes. I think that was quite frustrating, but it was also, as you can imagine, tremendous fun, especially given my interest in maps and routing and uh, navigation. Yeah. Now the other bit of software that we kind of failed to mention last time, uh, which is embarrassing for me because it's probably the bit of software Steve's that I use the most was uh, Pocket Info. So maybe you should tell us a bit more about that, Steve. Yeah, in the late 1990s, I had I had the idea of, I mean, I was a big Cyan user, obviously, and uh, coming into Palm PDAs and and, and Pocket uh, PCs and Symbian communicators, all these different devices. And I was, But they all use different formats. But I, I generally wanted the same information on each of the devices, you know, as we do today. These days, it's called the internet, and you just access it. But in those days, this is pre-internet, I had the idea of gathering useful databases on everything under the sun in both cyan and generic formats in curated and downloadable form. I called this Pocket Info. And I did it kind of in conjunction with Scion, who were helping me out with some sponsorship, basically paying for a bit of my time to help create the content. And then, of course, users would send again, just as with the mapper overlays, users would send in databases and I'd then knock them into shape and produce the different formats, you know, CSV, tab delimited, um, DBF format, all the famous database formats, and then put them up for upload. Um, and it was very, very popular for a few years. Um, this again, this is this is before the mass market internet. Certainly, the mass market internet on mobile devices. Um, but it was very handy. It was all online, but it was very, very, very low bandwidth, so you could access it on even the rudimentary web web browsers on sort of. Uh, uh, smartphones circa 2002 2003 and you'd use up about 15 kilobytes with the whole page so it was a very very accessible and of course once you've got the databases you can just use them offline in the appropriate database programs on your scions or communicators so it was a neat idea i took it offline a few years ago because the information was just starting to get too out of date it's just an incredible undertaking as you can imagine to try and keep all of this all of the databases up to date with um new events new winners and new trophies all the things you're trying to reference new ideas new new concepts new conversions coming along all the time and it was just too much hassle to keep all of that up to date and and i didn't have anyone to help me really um also it didn't didn't help that a few miscreants started linking to some of the larger content which was hosted on my own server and trying to ddos me and they blew out my bandwidth cap on my web host several times and left me with a hefty bill which i kind of disputed and didn't really get all the money back but uh, that's rather annoying when you've got you linked to I, I don't know a 100k database file and then some some wag decides to put a, a loop on a a script file somewhere on the internet d- d- grabbing it a million times then you're left with the bandwidth bill so or rather annoying. Yeah, yeah, very frustrating. And I mean, it, it's interesting. I, so I remember using this one, but of course now it seems quite quaint with the idea of uh, Wikipedia or kind of the internet just uh, yeah. a search box away. Um, I will just pause and 
happily remember the Cyan data application, which is one of the ways you distributed it. And it was yeah. a brilliantly easy to use database application, which I don't think I've seen equaled uh, anywhere else in many ways. And it's a sort of application I would still love to have um, on my, my smartphone because it was effectively a freeform database. You could set up and design the fields to uh, do you know, what you wanted them to do. And there were different types, and then it had very good searching and filtering capabilities. So although it was relatively simple in some ways, uh, the kind of flexibility that allowed you to kind of collect and collate information, I think, was pretty much unparalleled. But as you probably suggested there, that kind of the, the need for that powerful offline database seems to have gone away from the kind of PDA and smartphone world altogether. Uh, but yes, happy memories of that. And just on the same, exactly the same theme, really. I was, uh, I've always been known as a bit of a, is it maven, is maven the right word? Someone who collects and curates information. But um, uh, also UK Pocket Directory and Trivopedia were two more of my projects. Um, and wh- one was a, a literally a directory of useful numbers to, 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 to call in the UK. And it would be things like the Royal Society for, for the you know protection of birds or uh, <laughs> concrete structures in your case. So there, would, there would be a, a hundred, <laughs> if not a hundred to, to a thousand different numbers. And of course, the, the, the big problem was that, that they'd all get out of date within a year or two. The numbers would start changing and there's just no way to really keep track of it and update it. It was a wonderful idea. Again, this was pre mass market Internet when you you see, couldn't just type into Google. What's the phone number for the, the main library in Chiswick? You had to search through UK Pocket Directory for libraries and then try and spot the one that said Chiswick. And then we had Trivopedia, which was a kind of a database again. All of these things based on that science data format you just mentioned, where you could keep all this inf- information offline. And Trivopedia was about um, trivia facts. So you'd have the, the 10 highest mountains, the, the, the 10 longest rivers, the Oscar winners since 1950, all that sort of stuff. And again, incredibly useful to have that offline. And you could amaze people at parties and pub quizzes. But of course, two or three years go by and so much of it starts to get out of date. Uh, luckily, I was spared the ignominy of, of delving into all of these databases, Pocket Info, UK Pocket Director and Trivopedia. I could say, that's it. I'm out of the database business. I'm out of the curating information business. The Internet's happened. Go look it up yourself. Go Google it. And the rest is history. Yeah. So I think that's probably a pretty good summary of all of your software efforts and some of the uh, journalist forays outside the All About sites. But it would be, I think, quite fun to share some of your personal highlights and memories um, from the all about yeah. era, you know, particularly focusing maybe on some of the PR stuff. I mean, the glamorous side of all about, because, you know, for all of the years that you've been contributing, there's also a big drudge side to this in the writing content day in, day out. And I'm not sure people need to know how many keyboards you went through, but I'm pretty sure, um, knowing some of the stories myself, there are going to be some personal highlights that you want to share. And I may, may be able to back them up with some of my side of the story as well. Yeah, I just picking a few in anecdotes really at random, but there's some of the more memorable ones. I remember getting my hands on the very first Nokia N95. Um, and it was, this is very shortly after its launch, really, certainly when the first units rolled off the uh, production line. I remember Nokia were using uh, OneWorld as the PR at the time and Donna and Frank, lovely people from OneWorld. Um, they, who headed it? They they drove to my house at midnight. You know, this 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 is available for <laughs> bloggers. This is not just us sort of popping it in a on a courier van and arriving a couple of days later. They physically drove it from their offices to my house at midnight uh, in a presentation box and dropped it off. And of course, me being a hospitable chap, I gave them tea and toast. And so we had tea and toast at midnight. Had they handed over this wonderful presentation box, said enjoy it, and then they headed off into the night. Um, that's what I call personal service, the closest I ever got to Raytheon VIP treatment in all my years <laughs> at AAS. 
Well, I have to say, I don't think I ever had a, a phone uh, personally dropped off by the, the from a thousand heads because thousand heads is the name of the, the company that was sort of um, fronted for One World, and okay. it went through through various name changes over the years. Um, my first contact with them was actually with the N ninety one, so preceding the N ninety five a little bit, where this was uh, Nokia's kind of music player smartphone that actually had a small hard disk inside of it in order to get i think it was up to eight gigabytes of memory which seems like a lot back then and now you <laughs> see so it's absolutely tiny and had music controls on the front it was kind of like a metallic silver ipod like device but they lent me one of those for a few days and i thought this was amazing because it was one of the first times i didn't have to work very hard to get hold of a, a review device because prior to that i was actually buying a lot of the devices or wheedling um, nokia pr and so you know, actually, one of the big changes that I can remember happening was this introduction of One World, where uh, Nokia, uh, through this agency, started reaching out to bloggers in particular, and then kind of expanding to online influencers more generally, and often just you know people who had an interest in it. Uh, and it was an amazing operation that really stretched over right up until kind of earlier this year. It kind of finally got shuttered, uh, and you know they made a lot of people very happy, but they also created an amazing sense of community. Uh, yeah, around yeah. Nokia, and actually, it's probably a subject we could talk in a lot more detail about. Um, tying it into the N95 story that you had, Sue. Um, actually, I was invited by a thousand heads to go to the launch in New York. Of yes, course. I didn't yeah. know at the time that it was the N95, and it was one of the first trips where actually it was sort of all expenses paid, and actually had to go through all the disclosure business when writing about it on the site. But got invited to see the launch of the N95 and actually they took us into the venue the day before and we were happily by a product manager shown off the device and uh, you know they said it's all right you can write about it now I thought, but the launch is tomorrow don't you want us to kind of wait until that happens no no it, it's fine and I suspect uh, in retrospect it wasn't fine but that's actually the story of how all about Symbian uh, exclusively broke the news of the N95 which got picked up by all the big uh, gadget blogs and all the other big kind of smartphone sites and the one that sticks in my mind actually is in gadget writing about it and saying uh, all about seeming claiming that this uh, n95 has a gps built in that it's got a five megapixel camera etc etc and they just said there's no way you can get all of that into a smartphone we just don't believe it <laughs> and actually that's that's kind of a, a sign of just how far advanced the yeah. n95 was for its time i mean Nokia talked about it being a multimedia computer, and it's easy to you know, sit here now and snigger at that kind of language. But actually, it was so far ahead of its time. It was a very, very advanced uh, device. And I think um, it kind of got put into the shadow, uh, I think, in many people's kind of mainstream history by the fact the iPhone got announced shortly afterwards. But in many ways, it was a much more sophisticated device than the first iPhone um, and really was the pinnacle of those kind of early non-touch smartphones it really it broke so much new ground and set a lot of firsts and things like the kind of gps mapping the really high performance camera um use of things like the accelerometer and a lot of people will remember the kind of the lightsaber application that on the n95 was kind yeah. of it, it was kind of made for it and so that's what i remember about it and then yes i do remember getting my hands on the review device in fact i think mine may come a little bit after steve because he had the exclusive midnight access mine probably arrived by <laughs> courier a, a few days later but it really was an a, amazing device and it, it, it's fair to say that um over the years i probably got a lot more travel out of the all about sites now this was partly um, the advantage i guess of being in charge but also steve was maybe less keen on travel and had uh, more family commitments tying down yeah. but 
I do remember you got access to the devices a lot of the time before I did, because uh, at that time, at least uh, a thousand heads was kind of just up the road from you, or I think it was in uh, somewhere in Berkshire. And only later did they move to their offices in Soho in London. Yeah. So I think before that they were based in based in Oxford. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned Frank and Donna. There was also Mike. Well, I think uh, many of these are still with a thousand heads, but now more senior in the company. It's obviously when it first started out, it was just a handful of people. Uh, it's now grown to a much bigger organisation, has many more clients other than. Uh, Nokia or then subsequently Microsoft but it was kind of fun being part of that in the early days and maintaining those connections through many years yeah just going back to what you said there about the N95 and I don't want to spend too much time on the hardware this is all about me this podcast but uh, (laughs) but just if think about it the N95 specs which were you know classes uh, outlandish by uh, Engadget famously but if you think about a a smartphone in 2016 a budget smartphone would might come out with uh, a, a a five megapixel camera and a front camera and GPS and accelerometer and just and stereo speakers. You think, well, okay, the, this is reasonable for a budget smartphone, twenty sixteen. But that this was ten years before a decade. A decade, a, a decade has passed, and yes, the N ninety five features are now completely commonplace. But the basic features, the basic feature set of the modern smartphone, originated back in two thousand six with that uh, the Nokia N ninety five launch. Everything has followed, and basically, the modern smartphone is the e- the ease of use and the capacitive touchscreen of that iPhone, but with the feature set and the basic functionality sweep of the N95. That's right. I mean, if you take away the the touchscreen, really, the N95 had it all, and so I really see it as the kind of the grandfather of all the smartphones that we have today. Because prior to to that, the emphasis was definitely on the phone rather than the smart, and it's an observation I've made before. But you can see in almost the entire smartphone industry as it exists today um, in the kind of the shadow of that N95. Uh, and to a certain extent, you could trace it back to the 7650, but it wasn't quite as clear then. Yeah. And I think it's only now when we're starting to talk about the way that smartphones are becoming the hub of a kind of a wider ecosystem. And it's things like wearables, but increasingly when we get into IoT and smart home, that that pattern is shifting ever so slightly in the fact that there's more intelligence going into, you know, virtual assistants and sitting in the cloud, that I feel that that shape has moved a little bit beyond, or at least you can see the pattern for the next five years. And so in some ways, I think that's testament to just how forward-looking Nokia was. And, you know, I think a lot of the history of of Nokia with uh, Symbian and with smartphones has now been tarred by what happened later on but even then people were saying you know nokia had the vision they just didn't weren't able to execute on it but i think the n95 is an example of where they had both the vision and the execution and that that is very evident when you look at what happened to the industry subsequently and as, as you say so you're talking about it 10 years later and actually a very recognizable shape yeah, yeah, we must press on, or else we risk being mired in two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, Ray. But uh, um, I do remember also picking up the the first Nokia N ninety seven from from Nokia PR in London with you in two thousand and nine, and the PR guys basically said something along the lines of, "Go go easy on it for a while; it's got a few bugs and issues." <laughs> And of course, they weren't kidding. In fairness, by the time of the annual Symbian show that year, the version 20 firmware had smoothed this um, S60 5th edition interface out a lot. And the N90, N97 was then really quite usable. Though just usable, I would say, and with a, with a resistive screen, it wasn't actually good enough then in a world in 2009 where the iPhone 3GS had just appeared uh, with Apple's third generation capacitive touch. Um, and the, of course, Android was then starting to come out as well. So... Oh, you know, the resistive touchscreen, I think, turned out to be the biggest limitation. And the S60 5th editions, um, 
interface just wasn't smooth enough. But it, it was fun playing with those early N97s. And I, I, this is the interesting anecdote here, I guess, is that we also picked up the Nokia N86 8 megapixel at the same time. And I felt for years that this was actually my favourite of the two devices. It seemed sacrilegious because the N97 was the flagship, but that N86 was very nice. And having picked both devices up from Nokia, we both headed to Symbian that same morning to do a video interview with whoever was CEO at the time, like uh, Nigel or Lee, I forget now. But <laughs> and, and we spent mo- I spent most of the hour while trying to listen to him and pay attention, looking wistfully at the two Nokia boxes in our rucksacks and wishing I could sort of dive in and start playing <laughs> with them. And I, was, I wasn't really paying attention, Rafe, sorry. Yeah, I, I do kind of remember that thinking... I seem to be asking an awful lot of the questions. Maybe Steve would like to uh, <laughs> jump in. But yeah, I mean, it's two phones I have very fond memories of. But actually, I mean, that comment about, you know, the PR guy saying, you know, go easy on it. It's actually one of the things that was always quite difficult about getting early access to these devices, often ahead of the public release. And, you know, there would be comments like it's pre-production software. And always yeah. a difficult judgment to make about how much you talked about that in reviews and podcasts. And certainly a lot of the time we had access to information that um, we kind of agreed was off the record. Um, and, you know, that that's the struggle I kind of look back on and wonder whether we could have been a bit more open about things. But at the same time, one of the reasons we had that kind of access and therefore were able to share our thoughts and you know reviews was because we had, got, you know, spent a long time establishing a relationship. I mean, you know, looking back on it, I think we mostly got the balance right, but perhaps sometimes yeah. could have been a little bit more critical. But it's it's easy to have that hindsight um, you know, when you when you look back. Um, and actually, the N97, I think, was most typical of that. I mean, particularly when you look at the low memory situation on that device, where it feels like there was a real misstep when Nokia was specifying. And actually, subsequently, that led to an interview with uh, one of Nokia's VP, Ansi Van Yorki, when he effectively said that the phone was not all we wanted it to be. I can't quite remember the phrasing he used, but it was one of the very high profile interviews I did at MWC, recorded it on video. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it went down the storm because, of course, it was effectively a Nokia exec saying it wasn't the device that we hoped it to be. You know, commercially, it was a success in terms of the numbers it sold, but they were admitting it was a bit of a dud. Um, I remember the interview vividly for two reasons. Firstly, that um, Anthony Van Yorki was great to meet him and obviously had heard a lot about him, but he kept kept calling me Raffi. And afterwards, <laughs> he commented to one of the Nokia PR people that it was uh, surprising to meet a Spanish blogger who was so knowledgeable. <laughs> um, I did not which, know that. <laughs> well, we'll move on swiftly. I also had a All About Symbian jacket, which I'd got specially made for the occasion, which was fully branded, and it went missing somewhere in that interview. So I, I kind of had the fond idea that Ansi Van Jochen stole my All About Symbian jacket. I suspect the truth is it's just draped across a, a chair somewhere to this day. Um, but as I say, very fond moment of the N97, but I would agree with you. The N86, which was really, I think, the ultimate refinement of that N95 fall factor, was a device that was underrated. And I think that was partly a result of the move to the kind of touch that was happening in both the Android and, of course, the iPhone yeah. world. Yeah, I do have fond memories of the All About Symbian pub meets each year. We held them for about four or five years running um, to coincide with the night before the main Symbian shows. So I, I guess we must have done our last one in about 2008. But I agree that there was always tremendous fun. And I, I know it's kind of vain maybe to say that we we were to enjoy being treated like a minor celebrity and to be asked for photo ops. I know, I know it doesn't matter much in the grand scheme of things. We were big fish in a little pond, but it was great fun. And thanks to all the people who came and, and, and basically made a fuss of us we really appreciated it 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, always one of the fun bits was meeting people in real real world who had read your content. And quite often this would happen to me when I was going to an event at the airport and someone would tap me on the shoulder and sort of say, oh, you know, our team read your, read your blog and it's really helpful. Of course, as you say, at the pub meets as well. It, it's probably worth saying one of the deliberate things we always set out to do with the All About sites was not to put the personalities front and centre. It was always about the content. So we did have a byline on there. But I mean, maybe it sort of talks to my personal values that I didn't particularly enjoy the egocentric nature of it. And I was quite happy to have other people front it. So those who will come along to the pub meets will remember that uh, Ewan often compared them and was, uh, even then, I think a bit of a larger than life character, did a brilliant job of it. Um, but uh, on the, the sort of grand scheme of things, probably uh, put less personality in obviously onto the site, although obviously I think our opinions and our personalities did come across in the way way that we wrote and the different things that we uh we wrote about but yeah the pub meets were a lot of fun they were also a big effort to organize it took a, a great amount of logistics getting everything in the right place at the right time especially once they expanded beyond about 20 or 30 people finding a a pub that was willing to uh, put up with a bunch of geeks it got harder as time went by um but it was a lot of fun and we did as you say tend to do them in association with the symbian smartphone event that then went on the road and so it became harder to organise them, and so we skipped a few years. But Steve, I know you still occasionally do a kind of pub meet where people can get together at sort of much quieter scale, but um, it was a lot of fun. Um, I mentioned you and Spence briefly there. He was really the other part of the core trio that was running the All About site. We did have some other people as well, uh, Chrissy Lassen and a few other uh, guest contributors, and later on David Gilson as well, all of whom, you know, it was absolutely fantastic to work with, always a, a pleasure um but yeah do you have any memories of uh, the colleagues on the team because i guess that was the other big thing about all about you know although we were all working uh from home it did feel very much like a team effort yeah it was great fun and we had a a, a skype uh instant message window a group mes- window open and it was always fun to use that as our kind of back channel making comments about the news and what we could be covering what we wouldn't be covering and and so forth um, I, I do slightly wor- worry sometimes rafe we had a few guest article writers over the years and I, I suspect many of them probably still have their logins to our content management system <laughs> that you wrote and i i do wonder whether any of them might ever get hacked or maybe they should get mischievous and we'd see an article and earn a thousand pounds an hour with no work from home or lose five stone in a month up on all about windows phone but um <laughs> oh no let's hope that they've either forgotten the credentials or something's timed out or expired yeah, I think we're probably pretty safe there, given that uh, a lot of those have also been reset or, or deleted and we've just left their author in the year. But yes, yeah, so I was looking at the CMS and actually there's about 25 or so entries, yeah. all of whom have a, a couple of articles associated and in some cases a lot more. So I guess we should say a general thank you to all those guest contributors over the years. And also, especially for in the case of All About Simbin, we had a number of people helping moderate the forums, which was a very large part of All About Simbin, especially in the early years. Um, forums, like a lot of other things, kind of fell away a little bit with the rise of uh, social media. I mean, they're still there for, for some topics, but they were actually the dominant part of the community element of these websites from, from very early on. And some of the ones yeah. I mentioned also had big forums and, you know, hundreds of thousands of posts and at times, you know, you had a couple of thousand people online at the same time on those forums. So very serious numbers. And it was always one of the things that I was very proud of, that we kind of provided that sense of community where people could share their own 
thoughts and impressions on on devices and get help and support with with that and i know um speaking to a lot of the nokia engineers those forums were monitored very closely to pick up on bugs and sometimes to get uh, you know ideas about how things could be fixed uh, probably more so than most people realized that they were actually kept a very close eye on and that was not just on the engineering side, but also the comms people who once told me, yes, whenever we get a problem that we can't fix, we always do a quick search on the All About Syndrome <laughs> form because more often than not, the answer's already there, which were, which was yeah. very good for the ego once again. Yeah. Anyway, back to me, Rafe. <laughs> back to me. <laughs> um, I want to just mention, there's a very, we talked about my phone show and, uh, and, and the, the smartphone show as it was at the very beginning in the last podcast. But it's, remember, the very first time I ever got invited to Symbian's HQ, I, mean, I never made it to Nokia headquarters in Finland, unfortunately, unlike Rafe, who went there several times. But uh, um, I went to Symbian's HQ for a chat about Symbian giving sponsorship for my smartphone show at the time. And I do remember a bit of head turning. It's again, this being a bit vain, I guess, but um, the people in the open plan office there, when some people started to recognize me, oh, the star power of All About Symbian. That is that Steve from All About Symbian. Wow. That was my main claim to fame at the time in the Symbian world. And the marketing head, whose name I completely forget, was it Lucy? Anyway, she wisely advised me to switch from just showing the phones in my hands, which I was doing, and still people do that today they do an unboxing of phone and all you see is their hands she said no 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 people want to see personality put your face on the screen and she also advised me to script things that i didn't have to ramble on for half an hour and i could basically do this deliver the same facts more succinctly in 10 minutes and she was absolutely right and what followed was my format to the current day a 10 minute show with me on screen tv presenter style and a pining on the industry and on smartphones in detail so i i have to thank her and i'm very sorry i can't remember her name i'll look it up rafe <laughs> that's right i mean the symbian offices were interesting in themselves in that they were remarkably uh, drab and boring they looked like any other office to be completely honest <laughs> um there were the occasional phone out and sort of boxes of interesting things and uh UIQ, which for a while lived in the basement of uh, the Symbian office, <laughs> <the basement>. had, <laughs> had, a, had a ready supply of uh, mints, which was always very welcome. Yeah. I, I did go to the, the Symbian offices a number of times. Um, they kind of grew a little bit over time. Originally, they're in Boundary Row, but then they had a kind of expansion office um, over the road. And particularly when Nokia took over, actually, the numbers got pretty significant and actually the entire of that operating system and many of the kind of associated engineers were kind of in that London area, all of course uh, now gone and many of them have moved on to other technology companies. And just as with Symbian where there was kind of uh, widespread, you, you now find them all over the place and actually one of the, the great pleasures that's still going to mobile industry events is coming across uh, people who, who now work for other companies within the mobile industry. Um, there are some, some big names there. I mean, I know uh, David Wood, who we interviewed a number of times on the site, has written some uh, great books on the subject as well and sort of continues to do an online blog and sort of talks about any number of things. So th there's a lot of history there. The last time I went to the Symbian offices was actually just before it, it closed. And it was actually rather depressing seeing it all wound down with kind of just piles of rubbish around the office and just a few kind of skeleton staff uh, left there. But uh, I went there actually because they said we need someone to take uh, a whole bunch of Symbian Japanese phones off our hands and we can't send them off to recycling because they won't accept them. Uh, <laughs> would you like to come and collect them? And so I got a box full of kind of older Symbian phones, which I still have sitting in a bottom drawer, not able to really do very much with them, but a very important part of Symbian history. Because while we were, of course, focusing on the Nokia, the 
Sony Ericsson, the Siemens devices and companies like Sendo. That's a kind of a story for another time, I guess. There were, of course, a whole bunch of Moat phones being produced by the likes of uh, Fujitsu and Sharp and a, a number of other Japanese manufacturers. But yes, uh, very happy memories of that. And I guess we'll, we'll talk about maybe some of the trips to Nokia HQ on another podcast, but a whole bunch of stories there as well. Yeah, and just to plug there again, for David Book's uh, excellent ebook, Smartphones and Beyond. We'll put a link in the show notes, Rafe, if you can, please, because that does give the, a lot of the backstory of, of the Symbian decade, if you like, and it's well, well w- worth a read. And also extensively quotes from me, which is rather gratifying. So thank you, David, for the name checks. I really appreciate it. It just showed he read the site anyway, Rafe. Um, I wanted to bring people up to date then. We've got a few minutes left on the podcast just to say the transitioning from this era of all about Symbian to all about Windows Phone, which is the latter stages of uh, of my career in terms certainly in terms of where you're concerned um aawp uh, started in 2011 after Stephen elop and steve balmer's famous handshake on stage and the adoption of windows phone as the future of nokia uh, shock horror i still remember you phoned me up the night before to give me the news under informal nda and it uh, my, i have to say my, my jaw kind of hit the floor a bit yeah I, I can remember finding out about this myself and desperately trying to find uh, kind of independent source that would verify this so we could write about it ahead of ahead of time but he said we did sort of heard informally a, a little bit about this and it was one, it's probably one of my regrets is not actually writing that story ahead of it actually happening and appearing to be very well informed but <laughs> yes as you say uh Stephen Edop and Subama got on on stage at that February morning uh announced it and everyone was pretty shocked by it um, particularly the speed with which things were going to happen um, obviously, once uh, C. Barmer appeared, it was pretty obvious that something big was afoot. Um, what I remember most about that event, though, is I asked the first question in, in the press conference, and uh, they asked us, as they often do, to announce who we were and where we were from. So I announced that I was Rafe Blanford from All About Symbian, at which point both Stephen Edop and Steve Barmer started laughing, because obviously they uh. just announced the kind of the end of Symbian, which set off the entire press pool behind me, who also started laughing. Now, to be fair, actually some of the... Uh, comms people were incredibly embarrassed by this and sort of apologized profusely afterwards i, mean, I was fine with it because I mean, let's face it it was quite funny having the first question come from a uh, a bloke from all about symbian and that was very well known to most of those figures as well and there's a lot of the press around as well um you know the site was well regarded and i think hopefully people have very fond memories of it but <laughs> that was a particular baptism by fire um and afterwards you know had a chat with both steve Barmer and Stephen elop and they sort of uh, I think had been advised that it would be diplomatic to just say polite things. Uh, and it, actually, the question was perfectly relevant because at that point, it wasn't quite clear what was going to switch to Windows Phone and which was going to switch to Symbian because the cheaper devices just couldn't run on Windows Phone because it wasn't really capable of supporting those lower-end devices, which is actually one of the reasons that Symbian stuck around for uh, probably longer than some people were expecting. So the, the first device, the Nokia, um, the N800, came out later that year, Um but it was a couple of years that we were still seeing uh, Symbian devices, uh, of which surely the most famous has to be the Nokia 808. Yeah, I just want to correct something. You said the N800. That was a Freudian slip because that was the that was the MIMO device, wasn't it? The, uh, it, it was. That's that's yeah. that's right. Yes, it was <laughs> the Lumia 800 is it what I wanted indeed. to say. But yeah, it took a good year, two years really for me to personally transition and to tear myself away from Symbian to writing Windows Phone content. I think I wanted to just hang around really because I, I preferred to fly the Symbian flag a bit longer, partly because the hardware was so much better on Symbian. The Nokia N8 was an incredible camera phone. The E7 was a pretty good communicator with a few quirks. 
And then that wonderful 808 you just mentioned, launched in 2012, a full year, launched over a year after the, trans- the transition was announced to Windows Phone. And here we have a Symbian complete and utter imaging flagship, which I'm still in love with, and I still shoot my phone show on to this day, as I mentioned in part one. And I reckon that all of these devices I've just mentioned were more capable than those first Windows Phone 7.5 devices. But by the time of the Lumia 1020 in 2013, so this was two years after uh, 20, the 2011 announcement, I was then kind of fully hooked on the more future-proof platform, one that actually worked with the internet in the current decade. Symbian had had a good run, though. and It's an operating system for a more offline age. Uh, but about a, a decade as the smartphone leader and, and AAS was the biggest site in the ecosystem. So I'm proud of my efforts, really, with the, the rest of the team. I think Symbian had a jolly good run. And thanks to you for managing it all, even to the current day. Well, that's that's very kind of you to say so. But I think Steve, as everyone will appreciate, was an enormous part of the content behind the site and certainly wouldn't have been able to get anywhere without him. So that goes right back at you. I think the interesting thing about this switch, which we've talked about a lot on previous podcasts, and it's kind of fun to look back with the benefit of kind of a few more years and maybe a bit more experience and, and hindsight. Um, the backstory to all of this, which we knew was going on at the time, was actually kind of the switch to uh, MIMO and subsequently MIGO. And the expectation was that was what was going to happen rather than the switch to Windows Phone. So that's in some ways why the Windows Phone thing was so shocking. And a lot of devices were on the roadmap to be powered by MAMO or MIGO, which was kind of a Linux-based operating system rather than Symbian. And kind of we had a hard time kind of understanding and accepting that looking kind of as uh, we were looking from the outside in at what was going in internally at Nokia because a lot of the things that we heard were very conflicting about how good it was going to be. And, of course, you know, from a purely technical point of view, you could understand some of the thinking behind Linux and this desire to get some of the cost down, and particularly what Steve was alluding to there with Symbian being for the offline age, some of the technical legacy and technical debt that that platform had, basically because it was built for an age which had more constraints and which devices, you know, had a different set of priorities than they do today. And that's actually, you know... Uh, it, the Mego project kind of got misjudged. And when it, Intel was bought in as a partner, that certainly delayed things. Um, there is definitely an alternative era out there which Nokia successfully transitioned to a new platform. And that could have been a resurgent Symbian. It, you know, Mego was actually the thing that won out. But there was some talk of kind of Symbian being re-engineered from the ground up. Much has actually happened halfway through Symbian's uh, life cycle in, in one of the kind of upgrades. I think it was from going from seven to nine, actually. But that happened relatively slightly. They handled the backward compatibility pretty well. Um, but that was going to be a big thing. So we knew that there was a big bump coming. It just wasn't quite what we expected with Windows Phone. And you know, certainly if you look back on that now, that decision, uh, I think it's hard to say whether it was the right or the, the wrong thing. I mean, the obvious answer is wrong because of what subsequently happened. But we have no re- real way of knowing what would happen if they kind of promoted or can- continued with Mego or if they switched to something like Android. Because I think actually some of the problems were absolutely related to the software uh, platform, but some of them were more systemic within Nokia and the culture and the organization itself. I mean, that's definitely a, a discussion for another time. Indeed, it's one we've had uh, many times before, but just kind of switching back because this is the Steve Litchfield's origin story. <laughs> you know, with, with the Windows Phone era, you know, there's actually been kind of a five-year period where we've been writing about Windows Phone and the 1020 in particular, I think, was a, is a device that many people associate Steve with having a bit of a love affair with. And, you know, it came out in 2013. It's really only been in the last 
six to 12 months that you've kind of moved on from that device. And actually, I think that's a testament to just how good that was as a device. Because if you look back, Steve, I mean, there must be some classic devices that you pick out, but that must be one that had one of the longest runs as your primary device. Yeah, the 808 and the 1020. Uh, and you made an argue before that maybe even things like the the, the, the N8. And the, the common factor, of course, is, is in a flash, which is why I keep writing it as seen in editorials <laughs> once a year on the sites, because I still think it's a, it's a technology trick that companies are missing. But uh, yeah, the 1020, my heart still skips a beat, Rafe. When I when I see on the tube or train or in a in a TV program, and it's, they, they were used quite a, few, quite a bit in terms of product placement, that flash of yellow with the big black circle in the back. Doesn't your heart skip a beat? That's a Lumia 1020 it certainly does me and it's it's a very very recognizable device it was incredibly capable for its time um yes it was never the fastest phone in the world even under windows phone 8.1 but the the things i did and the things i shot um in 2013 on that lumia 1020 uh i i I was very proud to own it and uh, i'm I'm glad that uh, that nokia stuck to its guns enough with imaging to to make it happen yeah, I mean, such a, such a distinctive device and unusual in an age where a lot of the smartphones look the same. It was both that shock of yellow and the big black round circle on the back, which housed the camera, was actually much bigger than it ever needed to be. And that kind of school of Nokia design, I think the 1020 was one of its high points, definitely. Um, and that whole kind of fabulous design language, which actually went back to the, the Mego device, the N9, and then was kind of it, it crafted in that 1020 in a device that I think defied expectations and of the Windows phone devices, I would probably pick it out as as my favourite device, um, even coming back to some of the more modern devices, which of course are, are more capable, but it, it sort of broke new ground and, and that ability of it to kind of take just amazing photos. I mean, I, I tried using it, you know, a couple of months ago, and I did, I have to admit, find it pretty slow. Um, and that's yeah. probably the biggest change. If I, if I look back on, you know, 15 years worth of this, actually just the speed and the capability of the devices has massively increased. But as we suggested earlier, the, the core functionality was there with the N95 in particular. Um, but yes, the ease of use, and I think, the accessibility of them to the mass market, that's the thing that's changed uh, for me. And that's that's the big thing to kind of go away with, I guess. And to bring things full circle, of course, if you go back to the start of Steve Litchfield Origins Part 1, when I was tinkering with Cyan Palm Tops, they were also virtually an instant instant um, interface and very, very fa- lightning fast applications. But then, of course, it was because they weren't doing that much in terms of uh, beyond these the simple productivity and office applications they weren't trying to communicate with the entire rest of the world and download 15 different servers and synchronize with five different accounts um, but yes we are now back to an age where we expect that kind of response and all the functionality and all the extensibility and all the ambition so i think we, we were kind of working our way towards an ultimate smartphone Rafe. We, we never seem to quite get there but it's great fun writing about it and chatting with you on the podcast yeah, our expectations always move on. And I think that's something that's been true uh, throughout Steve's 20 plus year career in the mobile industry. 23 years, I think it is now, yeah. which is pretty amazing. That that always blows my mind when I, I remember that particular stat. So it's been absolutely tremendous fun talking about Steve Litchfield's origins. I think what we have come out with is that actually at some point in the not too distant future, we should probably reminisce about some of the early uh, Symbian era and some of our favorite devices and things like that and some more of the kind of behind the scenes story but as uh, Steve suggested maybe get you and Spence on to talk a little bit about that I hope you've enjoyed listening to this and I just want to say one big final thank you uh, to Steve Litchfield for being 
kind enough to be the partner over all these years, but also being brave enough to share his origin story over the last two podcasts. It's been tremendous fun. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, thanks everyone. And we will catch you for more regular programming in the very near future. Bye for now. Thank you.